Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 232, In War, the Price is Always High. Last time, with the forward body unit of the 22nd South African Brigade reaching the largest part of the bridge over the Betsy-Boka bridges, the Vichy troops there had cut the cables holding said bridge in place. This largest river of Madagascar needed to be crossed so the Allied troops could continue on to the capital. However, as we have just seen, the French got there first, until they didn't. The suspension cables were cut, but the bridge itself, still intact, simply lowered down until it reached the riverbed, but it was still intact, so usable, if the South Africans didn't mind driving through a few feet of water, and they didn't. Not that the battle for the bridge was over. The Vichy troops called in air support, and a Potez 63 bomber flew over the bridge and dropped bombs. In all, six bombs were dropped, but they all missed the bridge. Later, to save face, Vichy officials tried to explain to the world that they were trying to thread the needle. They wanted the bridge damaged enough so it could not be used by Allied troops, but not damaged too much as they would need to repair it later. Decent propaganda as far as that goes, but it did not change the fact that the bridge was still usable. Well, now that that little show was over, it was time to get back to the mission. Major Dawson, the officer in command of the forward body, had his mortars fired at the enemy on the other side of the river. This was followed up by the Vickers guns from the armored cars spraying any movement that was spotted across the water. With this done, Dawson had a Lieutenant King and his company cross over. As soon as they reached the far bank, they were forced to lay low by machine gun and rifle fire. King knew that to stay in place was to die, so they tried to make their way up the bank, but within seconds, six of his men were hit. What was needed was more men, which Dawson had already figured out and sent over a second unit. So reinforced, the Allied troops rushed up the bank, firing as they went, along with whatever Dawson had that could reach the Malagasy troops on the other side. And it worked. Soon, ten local troops were dead, four more were wounded, and thirty-nine were taken prisoner. Whoever decided the defending disposition of this most important bridge had failed. The eighty men defending, backed by one hundred more in reserve, had not been enough. In fact, most of these men had retreated when the firing had started. But now that the fighting was over, Dawson's engineers got to work, making the bridge as secure as they could. By the afternoon of the next day, the bridge was safe enough to cross, and the forward body, now joined by number one fighting group, crossed over. Even better, a South African Air Force squadron, now called 16 Squadron, had landed at Mahunga Airfield to support whatever the South Africans needed to do next, which was, of course, approach the capital, Tananarive. This allowed the Kerry Illustrious that the 16 Squadron had come from to leave and rejoin the Eastern Fleet. Everything, it seems, was coming together. Even better, two Maryland bombers, now based at Mahunga, took off the next day and patrolled the road from that river to the capital. These South African planes made short work of the enemy transports spotted, which allowed them to move on and attack the airfield at Ivato, 
south of the capital. Yet, there was a price for this success. One of the Maryland bombers was badly damaged by AA fire protecting the field. Not that Governor General Annette had given up just yet. This Allied thrust towards the capital was being led by Captain Robertson's D Company of the 1st Regiment of the Car King's African Rifles, and he and his found, in their path, everything from roadblocks to destroyed bridges. True, air reconnaissance had warned Robertson what to expect, but that did not mean there wasn't Vichy troops nearby waiting to shoot at the riflemen as they tried to clear the way. Fortunately, most times, the obstacles were the only thing they had to worry about. And this was Annette's plan, or at least the first phase of it. As they would tell Vichy in a few days on September 28th, every day that passes allows us to ameliorate our defenses on all access of penetration. True enough, but it did not stop there. The local military commanders were told to ready their men and destroy anything that may help the enemy while the indigenous guard were told to cut telegraph wires and destroy or hide all vehicles, certainly those close to any bridge. And lastly, they were to remove all foodstuffs or animals that might sustain the approaching enemy. So, no surprise, the progress of the Allies was slowed. In fact, by September 16th, Robertson and his were only at Anjiajia on the north side of the river Mamokamita, that is about 100 kilometers away from Mahunga, but they still had another 300 kilometers to go before reaching the capital. Robertson saw that the latest bridge had been destroyed, but at least the town there looked abandoned. Perhaps Vichy officials had cleared the town to protect the civilians. Either way, this river had to be crossed, so Robertson had a Lieutenant Palmer of the engineers cross over with a single infantry platoon and, while crossing, assessed the damage to the bridge. Everything was going well, until it wasn't. The crossing was uneventful, a most cherished word by any military personnel, that is, until Palmer and company started climbing up the southern bank. Then, gunfire opened up, and two of Palmer's men were hit in quick succession. Robertson, on his side of the river, did not hesitate to order mortar fire and send over reinforcements. Perhaps this would be like last time. A Lieutenant Fraser leading the reinforcements decided to swing around to the left to surprise the enemy. But soon, everyone was shooting at everyone else, and Fraser was killed. But the reinforcements did not give up. A sergeant, an African named Odilo, took command, and they kept moving. When Fraser was killed, Palmer, the leader of the more direct approach towards the enemy, was hit. It seems that the defenders were holding their fire until the enemy, that is the Allies, were close upon. But perhaps they waited a little too long. As one of Palmer's men recounted, the Senegalese were very brave. They held their fire very late, if anything, too late. By the time they opened up, our platoon was committed, and there was nothing for it but to go hammer and tongs, which they did. Odilo, leading his men, had swung around enough to approach the machine gun nest from the rear and undetected. With that done, and the first unit approaching the enemy from the front, the fighting was soon over. But not really. 
As the British officers looked on, stunned, the men with them of the 22nd South African Brigade decided on a bit of their own justice. One white officer would record, the Ascaris, or African soldiers, went mad and rushed at the enemy regardless of anything but blotting them out. When they got very close, they threw down their rifles and butchered the enemies with pangas, very heavy knives with a blade about 18 inches long. As for the French troops that would not vacate their dugout, these men threw grenades into them. Whether it was the sheer violence or speed, the British officers did not stop them. Either way, the area was now cleared. But it was not a perfect operation. The King's rifles had lost five men, with seven more wounded. But Vichy troops lost more, with 52 casualties. As for Odilo, the African sergeant, he was awarded the military medal. The rest of the day was spent crossing the river and looking for more ambushes. None were found, so the forward body moved on to Maratsapoi, about 200 kilometers distant. Now they were only about 100 kilometers from the capital, and they found a small clearing at Maratsipoi, which allowed the South African Air Force to land planes there and use it as a forward base. The advance was a bit easier once past Maratsipoi, but hotter from a certain point of view. Here, there were more plains, i.e. flat, but there was also a bunch of grasslands, which evidently the retreating Vichy troops had set ablaze. As the forward body raced down the road, there was fire to either side of them, but mostly this did not disrupt their travel. But then the planes ended to be replaced by a mountain. Once that was covered, the Allied troops reached the next Vichy defensive position at the Manakazo River, about 70 kilometers or 43 miles north of the capital. But instead of going through close-quarter fighting again, the men brought forward their bore force from the 145th Light Battery. The projectiles from these encouraged the French-led troops to leave well enough alone. They disappeared into the hinterland. And the next part is predictable enough, given the mountainous terrain. Roadblocks made of loosened rocks blocked the path. In fact, along one section, just over two miles long, some 30 roadblocks had to be cleared. The South Africans guessed that it was easy to block up the road here, just loosen up a few rocks above the side of the road, and voila. The Vichy troops had obviously put their backs into it, but so too did the South Africans, and soon the road was cleared. By September 20th, the brigade headquarters was set up at Ankozobi, about 65 kilometers or 40 miles northwest of the capital. So the good news was that the Allied forces had just traveled 300 miles in 10 days and were only 40 or so miles away from the capital. The bad news was that a few miles from where the King's African rifles were, the main French defensive line was ready. As in, as bad as things had been to get to this point, and the South Africans had suffered losses, it was about to get a whole lot worse. Further, the British-led forces did not know what they were up against. For the last few days, the South African Air Force had been flying over this very area. But the French positions were so well hidden, being in a jungle helps, 
they did not know that the French had a defensive line that was two miles long and manned by three companies of infantry backed by six heavy guns and more besides mortars and machine guns. This could end up being another Battle of Anserain. This area, Mahitsi, is about 20 kilometers from the capital, but the South Africans found this out the hard way. On September 20th, creeping ever closer to their goal, the capital, the men were brought up short by gunfire and artillery. This was the first defensive line of the French. And not that the Allied troops knew exactly where the enemy was stationed, they guessed a location and they saw that the road that they needed to use ran right below that supposed spot. To travel any further, should they get through this first line, was tantamount to being dead fish in a French barrel. Well, at least the men of the King's Rifles had a starting point. The D Company of the car were sent out against this first defensive line, and as it was well situated and long, these men, the South Africans, were soon trapped by crossfire, a very unfortunate place to be. Then the French 75s opened up, No one wanted to deal with those, certainly not the armored cars that had carried the troops to this point. They had to drive away and seek shelter from the ordnance. When the 75s stopped, the cars got away, leaving D Company pinned down with no help from the rest of the fighting group. Problem was, Lieutenant Colonel McNabb, the group commander, could not tell where the French guns were placed, so was hesitant to send more men forward. No, he decided he would wait until the French showed themselves. All of this had started just after noon on September 20th. At 4 p.m., the French guns opened up again, and this time, knowing what to look for, McNabb located the guns. As darkness would come soon, he had three companies approach these guns from the right, from the left, and straight on. A company which had swung around to the French left, thus the Allied right, had swung out a bit too far. Still, in time, they ran into the French left flank. This company drove the French back about 300 yards, which is when the French troops decided to make a stand. However, it's more likely that they were ordered to. Soon, tracer fire was seen coming from the French, but this caught the grass on fire. Instead of panicking, the French used this smoke to get in closer, and they readied their grenades. This caused A Company to back up, but not in an organized fashion. This could have been the beginning of the end of the attack right here, but soon that same fire spread to a point right in front of the main French line. When A Company once again moved forward, they found that the French, who had started the fire, was gone. Did that mean the entire French position had retreated? Who knew? Meanwhile, on the French right flank, Major Dawson had B Company and went searching for those French 75s. First, they ran into a small village. It would have been potential suicide to simply bypass that village as snipers might be hiding within. So the area was searched. Fortunately, nothing was found, and a firefight that could have given away their position was avoided. Next, they came upon an enemy machine gun post, and here, weapons had to be used. 
but at least the enemy position was taken out quickly. They moved on again. Soon, they spotted the 75 gun and hunkered down. Instead of attacking it directly, no telling how that would have turned out, Dawson called the gun's location in to the 9th Field Regiment, and they readied their 25-pounders. Six rounds later, the massive French gun and its crew were silenced. On that same day, September 20th, 1942, the South African Air Force had been given a job. They were to follow the rail line that ran south out of the capital. If any trucks or trains or anything carrying supplies was headed to Ansarabe, about 110 kilometers southwest of the capital, any bridges ahead of them were to be destroyed. No sense in letting the French reestablish themselves further south to keep the fight going. The South African planes were in the air by 8.05 a.m. that day, and soon they saw six trains and over 100 wagons. Clearly, the French were taking all they could to continue the resistance. So the planes flew on ahead and spotted a smallish bridge that the rail line crossed over. The planes dove down and bombed with what they had. They all missed. So three Beauforts were called in, and they had a go, but they all missed. The next day, September 21st, two more air attacks were launched, but they all missed. Seems that the French weren't the only ones having bad luck with bridges. Oh well, the French would have to be stopped the old-fashioned way. A company moved out that September 22nd and captured an old but still usable French 80mm gun and the two men watching over it. But more importantly, McNabb was able to find where the next enemy threat was holed up and called this in to the South African pilots. From noon on that day until it was over, two RAF Lysanders bombed and strafed the French position. Before too long, 68 men on the ground surrendered to McNabb. The good news was that the first of the Mahitsi's defensive lines had been pierced, and the South Africans had moved on. The bad news was that they soon figured out that the enemy had set up three defensive positions along the causeway that the Allied troops would have to use to continue on. A causeway is a build-up mound of earth for a road or rail line to set upon. As it is higher, it will avoid any minor flooding that may occur. But McNabb did not have time for the second and third line of defenses, so he sent out B and C companies to either side. Meanwhile, the rest of his men were to keep clearing the roads so the Allied cars could move on. The French must have gotten wise to this, as two 65mm guns from Mahitsi itself opened up, and the men on the two flanking companies started to fall. Now, there was no way the infantry were going to reach those guns in time to stop them before too many men were dead. McNabb would have lost so many men by then, it would have been impossible to continue. Fortunately, he had the rest of his men again clearing the road, which allowed the Allied cars to go pell-mell down that road towards the town and, of course, towards those guns. But now, the men doing the clearing of the road were under machine gun fire. Again, McNabb did not have time for this, so he detached D Company from the road clearing and had them rush right at the machine gun, which dominated the causeway for a good long stretch. 
and though it took two hours, the French machine gun and its crew were silenced. By now, those two flanking companies on either side of the town were able to get in close and rush in at the same time. This was more than the French could defend against. The Battle of Mahitsi was another Allied victory. Despite the fact that the town and the defensive line was made up of three companies of Vichy infantry with machine guns, with mortars, and three field guns. And half of the French artillery survived this battle, so it now belonged to the British. Even better, Malagasy troops started deserting the French. Why die for nothing? And best of all, the road to Tananarive was good to go. Mm-hmm.